Today I was joined by Tom Weiner, who is the founder of Mount Indy, a source for peak talent that provides recruiting solutions for businesses of all sizes. He is also the co-host of The Employment Line, a podcast that offers a fresh take on recruiting. Tom has over 10 years of experience in managing large-scale recruitment programs in the commercial, federal, and DOD spaces. Thank you so much for joining me, Tom. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Glad to be here. Could you tell me a little bit about the current staffing augmentation market and the types of industries and positions that you're currently recruiting for? Sure, absolutely. So we primarily focus on small to mid-sized DOD contractors, those that may not have a robust in-house talent engine and need some help with their talent acquisition in general. So we focus a lot on software development of all types, DevOps positions, IT positions, so a lot of software and IT positions, but we also do some intelligence work as well, program management, business development. And then part of our business is also finding TA leaders for DOD contractors that want a real strategic mind driving their talent engine. So all of our positions are mainly cleared positions, and, and those are what we focus on. I'm going to make the assumption that that's across the country then. Yeah, exactly. Most of our positions are either in San Diego or the D.C. metro area. Yeah, we do have positions across the country. So it's pretty apparent that, or at least in my findings, that company benefits have changed over the years. And I feel like that's really reflecting what is important to the American workforce is changing. And so I'd love to hear specifically to you know your cleared and defense clients, uh, what kind of benefits are you using as negotiating tools with candidates today? What we see a lot right now is everyone wants you know some sort of remote option which is very difficult with cleared work i think a lot of companies are finding workarounds for that but most candidates especially in software development or any type of work that you don't really have to be in an office necessarily around a team all the time they're looking for remote possibilities even if it's just one or two days a week we see that as being very desired right now in the space and then Performance bonuses are huge too. And it's not something that you always see in the cleared space with people that may be billing directly to a contract, but a lot of employees are wanting to be bonused on um, maybe milestones or project deliverables that they hit. Not every company can afford to do that, but that's something that we see some companies that are somewhat forward thinking, they're able to do that or profit sharing with additional 401k contributions at the end of the year. All of these above and beyond benefits are very much appreciated right now. Most companies are doing standard PTO packages, vacation packages, holiday packages, medical benefits. Pretty much there's the standard that everyone is offering and those things like paying for certifications or offering remote work or any sort of profit sharing or performance-based incentive. Those are the benefits that I really think are pushing companies over the mark that are attracting candidates into their company successfully. I think at this point with the market right now, it's really forcing companies to be creative in those benefits because commercial space, like you said, a lot of software developers are able to work remotely. So again, companies needing to be creative, I've seen as well um, more recently. It's the other thing that we're really surprised with because we work with a lot of companies and some companies don't even know all the benefits that they have and that they're offering. And it takes a real deep dive with HR to get the benefits slicked and really figure out even little things like a lot of companies have like movie passes or they have these 
ticket programs that when you're speaking to the hiring managers, they don't necessarily know all of those things. So that's the other thing that we find is really important is really dig into your benefits program. I guarantee there's stuff in there that you don't know is there and that you're telling candidates about. Um, commuter benefits is a big one. A lot of companies have that. Um, certification or educational benefits, tuition reimbursement. These are ones that you don't really see employees always advertising, but a lot of companies have them. So it's really important to dig into really what you have and talk to the HR department to see all of those extra little sales points that you could be advertising on your website or job descriptions. That's good advice for both, you know, our cleared candidate seeking listeners and also for our recruiting personnel or companies that are listening. That's great advice. As a recruiter, not coming from the technical world or not knowing everything as a recruiter because you're recruiting for IT personnel, for software developers, for intelligence personnel, for scientists, whatnot. In a new recruiter's journey, just being honest about what you don't know, I would love to hear what other advice you would have specifically for new recruiters coming into the cleared space. You have to be inquisitive. That's number one. Having that inquisitive nature is going to get you very, very far. We drown in acronyms every day. And the challenging thing, when you get into recruiting in the cleared space, you think that your program manager knows everything or that your hiring manager knows everything and you don't question things. I'm not saying being confrontational, but one thing that I found very quickly when I got into DRD recruiting is sometimes the people that are giving you the requisitions or leading the programs they don't know the answers and helping them by providing them with data or questions can be really beneficial in the recruiting process. So ask about things. Google is your best friend. Google all the acronyms that you see on your job requisitions. And it's really important to kind of dig in. But that kind of aha moment when I realized that the company just won a program and me and the hiring manager were somewhat at the same step as far as understanding of the job and the labor category descriptions. So that was very helpful for me to question things. So that would be one thing is questioning, but also you have to take action daily. And that's one thing I think a lot of recruiters, especially in the DOD space, and I don't really understand this, in the commercial space, a lot of recruiters are super outside of the box when it comes to recruiting and sourcing and finding candidates and they're willing to really dig through different databases and use data mining and all of this these new cool chrome extensions that are available to us as far as for sourcing capabilities the commercial space does that really really well but the dod space for some reason the recruiters feel that we're not going to find cleared candidates that way and the only way we're going to find cleared candidates is if they're advertising themselves um, as having a clearance so i would think that a new recruiter coming into the dod space Get used to utilizing all of those resources that are freely available to you outside of the normal job boards that you have access to, those Chrome extensions that I'm speaking about, or get used to data mining candidates. Cleared candidates are out there on social media. They may not be saying that they have a clearance on their social media pages, but using some deductive reasoning will really help you open up a whole new candidate pool. And what I mean by that is if you start understanding the companies that operate in the cleared space and start understanding the clearances that are associated with certain contracts, you can very easily identify more candidates 
just by using that line of reasoning. So being inquisitive, but also use those resources that are available to you that I don't see a lot of the recruiters in the DOD space using. Sure. And that's great advice as well. Almost reading between the lines, right? I mean, I remember I was trying to find a scientist who could work on a specific contract that a lot of folks with the Department of Energy clearance had. And a lot of those folks, you know, outside of the DOD, they don't advertise clearances the same way on their social profiles, but also in uh, standard resume databases. So almost Mm -hmm. taking a look at the locations that they were looking in or the different labs that they were looking in and reading between the lines. So utilizing that deductive reasoning, that's that's amazing advice for new recruiters. And that's another really good point that you bring up that, again, so, you know, I'm the the type of recruiter that asks a ton of questions to the point of annoyance, I'm sure. But (laughs) through this behavior, I've gotten more people hired. And you bring up the point about the clearances. Talk to your FSO. A lot of times, especially when I worked internal for a company, the program manager would say, no, the clearance won't work. That clearance will not work because it's held in a different system. And if I would have just stopped there, probably 30% of my candidates would have never gotten hired. But what I would do is then go to the FSO and say, hey, got this person. Let's look at their record in JPASS or whatever system. Is this transferable? What do we need to do? What's the timeline? You know, and then the FSO would kind of coach me and I would go back and tell the hiring manager in a very non-confrontational way, hey, I think if we are able to start the crossing period for this person right now, um, in three weeks, they'll be able to start. Or, you know, it's just questions like that. But that goes back to sometimes you just have to ask questions and you have to use the resources within the company to help you get to the right answer. Because you will see a ton of roadblocks, especially when it comes to their personnel. A lot of people on the hiring side will take the path of least resistance and say, hey, if they're not currently read in right now to an SCI, I don't want to deal with them, even though that may not be what the contract states. So get used to that questioning. One thing that you did mention was a lot about data. Data has become a tool, I feel like, of every team in today's business environment. But I'd love to hear about how you utilize data to make better informed decisions at Mount Indy. We, you know, as a small business, it's really important to us. And again, you know, we spent a lot of time working and leading internal teams. So, you know, we understand the recruiting data. The first thing that I want to say about data in general is, Whenever you're dealing with data, you have to make sure that you're dealing with the data that the audience cares about. So from a a talent acquisition, recruiting leadership point of view, to me, there are certain things that are super important. Time to fill, source of hire, time the candidates in workflow. Those things are very important to me. But when I'm speaking to an executive team, they may not care about that. They may care about retention. They may care about attrition or time to hire could be something that's very important to them or how long job description or jobs are staying open. So whenever using data from a performance perspective, it's very important to understand what the audience wants to hear. So that's my first thing about data is understanding what your audience, what's important to them from a data perspective. From a operational perspective, how we use it internally is, you know, source of hire is very important to us, where we're getting our candidates from. But what we've really established as being the number one important metric to us is the response rate. So everything that we do as a company is 
focused around our response rate. We want our response rate to be in the 60s and 70s from each candidate outreach. We typically don't get that, but everything that we do is to get that 60 or 70% response rate. So we track all of the outreaches that we have by type. So we're tracking how many emails we send out, what days we send them out, how many phone calls, how many text messages, emails, LinkedIn connection requests, whatever it is, we're tracking when that stuff is going out. Then we're able to see what day are we most successful. So for Tuesdays, when we're reaching out into you know the national capital region, we may have a higher response rate on text messages. But on Wednesdays, we may have a higher response rate on phone calls. So we take all of this data and then we start molding our performance around that data. So we'll say, okay, historically, Tuesdays are our most successful days for candidate response on text messages. I'm going to make sure my text messages go out on that day and focus more of my phone calls on Wednesday. And this is all data that we're tracking, you know, on a daily basis, really in real time. It's going to allow us then to forward project workflow and how long it can take to fill certain positions based upon our historical data. We are not by any means data scientists, but we're really getting nerdy about the data that we collect because we feel like that's the only way that we're going to fine tune our ability to continue to um, provide cleared personnel quickly. But also when we go in and train other teams, this is something that the executives love because not only are they seeing real-time activity data from their team, but again, it's that forecasting. So they can say every single time we've got to fill a full scope developer in this region, it's taken us this many days we can expect that that vacancy will be filled within X amount of time. So that's another really powerful way that we use the data. And then there's the market data, which honestly, all of the market data is kind of like the bad news. And if we see nobody's available and clearances are taking X amount of time to get adjudicated, which obviously that's, they're cleaning that whole process up, which is great. But all of the data suggests that we're negative unemployment. That's one thing that that's always said, which I think is interesting. They say, whatever it is, 3% unemployment. But when you look at security clearances and you look at people with degrees, we're actually negative unemployment, which is not healthy for the job market. And so that's like the bad news. And we use that data to hopefully kind of rev the engine and get the internal teams to act quicker. But yeah, unfortunately, all of that kind of job data is like the bad news. And if I was still working internal, what I would do with that data is use it to reset my entire hiring process and say, if you get a candidate right now that is qualified for your position based on the fact that we're negative unemployment, you need to drop everything that you're doing and get to interviewing this candidate. So a lot around data, but yeah, that's that's how we kind of view it. It's amazing to kind of think back before data analytics and data science was were big buzzwords, you know, in any industry that we were able to operate just the return on investment when looking at data trends. It's just kind of crazy to think back before it was a huge focus in recruiting specifically. Yeah. And it's what's crazier is there's a lot of companies that aren't focusing on it at all and they're flying blind. And that's the thing that I think is just absolutely nuts. I mean, especially when it comes to your recruiting budget, if you're not tracking source of hire to say, why am I still using XYZ license or why am I still posting on this job board? There's so much data. And that's the other thing. Vendors will give you the data. They'll tell you how many people clicked your job and how many people applied and how many people converted. And if you're not looking at that data to 
reassess your recruiting spend dollar. I mean, that's the easiest place to figure out return on investment. But yeah, it's crazy that that's not the number one on, on a lot of companies' lists. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Kind of going back to the employment line, talking about culture fit and how that has become kind of like a, a blanket statement for rejecting candidates, quote unquote, they're not a good culture fit. When I have worked in the private sector, that was something that came about quite a bit, but maybe not so much in the cleared space. So I'd love to get your opinion on how much you do think that applies in the cleared space. You mean how much I see rejecting because of culture fit in the, sure, in the cleared space? Yeah. yeah, right. We see it. We see it in different ways. And some people don't come out and say culture fit. They'll say not a fit or personality fit or they were weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are... All, <laughs> These are all definite indicators that you're being rejected because of culture fit. The thing that's really disastrous about culture fit is people feel like they're forward thinking for saying this, like, you know, we're, we're rejecting on culture fit. We're building a strong culture. But the thing that a lot of companies get backwards is culture comes from the top of the organization, not the people that you hire. So you've got a company culture that it's the way that you operate when the doors are closed. Are you yelling at people through email? Are you celebrating success? Are you sending emails out at seven o'clock at night expecting employees to respond? Are you celebrating birthday? You know what I mean? It's good and bad things. You're hiring this person to be your VP of culture. This comes from the top down. So hiring for culture, it's nonsense in my opinion. And we do see it in the DOD space. And unfortunately, a lot of times, even though we're not supposed to be, we're at the mercy of the government customer. And whether we want to admit to it or not, a lot of times the government customer is giving the final thumbs up when it comes to, can you bring this person on board? So you're looking at hiring into the government customer's culture. From the point that you can control it, rejecting someone because you don't understand something about their personality or they are quiet or they were too nervous or whatever it may be. They didn't come across the right way. If they were a technical fit, saying hiring for, you know, rejecting because of culture is just is complete nonsense, in my opinion, especially in this market. And then when you look at the data again, all of the data suggests that diverse teams make better, more informed, strong decisions when it comes to the work that they're performing on a day to day basis. So you don't want to get your team into that group think mentality where everyone thinks the same way. There's no voice or reason in the room. There's no devil's advocate. So even pulling the data back in, the diverse team, and we're talking about diversity of thought, that makes a stronger team. We do see it in our space. It's a real bummer for us being on the side of the fence that we're on when it comes to helping our clients when that rejection is made. It's not something that is so prevalent as we see in the commercial space. But it, it is there in the in the DOD sector for sure. Being a former recruiter myself, I'm always interested in hearing other perspectives on sort of the structure of recruiting teams and what works best. So within a recruitment team, I've seen companies that differentiate the full life cycle of recruiting between different programs or different niches. So I've also seen teams where some recruiters focus on the sourcing or resume matching, others on interviewing and management with negotiating salaries. So what are your thoughts on best practices for recruiting teams as a whole? That's a great question. And, and this is something that we see that the duty contractors try to mirror from the commercial companies and something gets lost in translation. And we see this a lot with 
the sourcing role. And traditionally speaking, the sourcer really stops. It's an identification role. And they're identifying candidates and, and then passing to the recruiter to close. Where that starts and stops has been up for debate for a long time. But the point is, if your idea of sourcing is going into a resume database, pulling resumes out, and that's all you do, you don't have the first clue to what sourcing is. And you know, I don't say that to be confrontational, but I've used this example recently with a client. It takes me 10 minutes to go into any database and find all of their full scope poly developers. Not Maybe not even 10 minutes. If someone's sole role is doing that, you're wasting your labor money as a company goes. Now, if that person is understanding, I'll just use clearance jobs, for example, that is a much bigger thing than just a job board. It's supposed to be used as a social media site. It's supposed to be used to create engagement and create relationships that um, nurture down the road. And, and then outside of clearance jobs, someone that can pull people from social media, somebody that can uncover candidates that nobody can uncover. That's what sourcing is. Finding passive candidates that aren't raising their hand for jobs, that are out there kind of in the middle of nowhere hiding, but you know how to find that person through data mining, scraping, and that person to the table. Now, if you have a true person that knows how to do that within your organization and could feed that person strategically into the recruiters, that is amazing. If that is what the sorcerer is doing, I think that a company should invest in that and they shouldn't look at that as a junior recruiter. That is a senior level sorcerer on par with the recruitment team, their teammates. But again, they have to have that ability to basically create candidates out of thin air, not just go into databases and see who raised their hand. If that's what they're doing, they're wasting money. Again, if they're creating those candidates out of thin air, a great investment to make. For larger companies that are investing in that model, I think that's really interesting if those sourcers have that skill set. Smaller businesses who, who are our bread and butter, I really think that it's the full desk recruiter that provides the most value to the team, somebody that has some pretty good sourcing ability and then can close the candidates through the process. But again, once you get above that maybe 500 person size company and you're hiring, let's say 60, 70, 80 people a year, that may be when you need to invest more into a sourcer that's gonna create pipelines of candidates that aren't raising their hands in the job boards. That, that's my opinion. I'm happy that you mentioned, you know, on sourcing, it's almost a common misconception that it's just not someone taking a look at candidates on the job board and matching them to an open job. It's almost being a sleuth. And I like to say from my last company, an open source intelligence analyst, you are trying totally. to find these people and get them interested in your company or at least get the name of your company and, you know, the kind of programs you're about in front of them. So it's almost like you're dating before getting married, right? It requires much more finesse. I love that you brought up OSINT and the open source stuff because there is a very powerful uh, toolbox out there called the open source toolbox, which mm -hmm. it's basically the same tools Intel analysts are using to do background investigations or gather intelligence open source. And a lot of recruiters are using that to find people, cross-reference people, things of that nature. But you're absolutely right. Sourcer is a sleuth. They are out there digging and finding and I just hate that it's been like people think that a sourcer is like a junior recruiter, which is absolutely not the case. Are there any other best practices that you'd like to share with our defense uh, recruiting audience today? Yeah. So 
it kind of ties into that sourcing and, and looking at sourcing that way. And if you are running a full desk and the thing to realize in the cleared space is there is a finite number of people that can do the job. That's the only thing that, that we have going for us in the DOD cleared space is that there are only a certain number of people that have clearances. The candidate pool is very small. The competition is insanely high. Operating with that knowledge, that should be the guiding factor to how you operate every single day, that the competition is insanely high, the supply is, is insanely low, and that should guide how you handle these interactions with people or, or your sourcing. The one thing that is debated all the time is, I hear this a lot because, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we hire TA leaders for companies. So we do a lot of recruiting of recruiters, and I get a really good idea of people's different ideas and methodologies. And one of the things that people have a problem with is they say recruiting is not sales, right? And which I totally disagree. Recruiting is sales. You are selling the job. You are selling the candidate. You're selling the hiring manager. You are selling the FSO that this person is going to clear. You are doing nothing but selling if you're doing job right way. It's not car salesman stuff, but it's very much a sales job. And getting kind of out of the mentality that I see a lot of people have a, have an issue with how often do I follow up? How aggressive should I be in my outreach? How thorough should I be? How many follow-up emails should I send? We are super far to one side on this. You know, to me, it's all about being very personal in your outreach, but being very persistent. And a lot of people are afraid to be persistent, especially when they're new to the space, dealing with cleared personnel. At the end of the day, all these people are just like you and me. Just because they have a clearance doesn't mean they have six fingers on one hand or special powers. They are just normal people. And you have to understand that they are being contacted a tremendous amount every single day. So what are you doing that's going to set yourself aside as a, you know, set yourself apart in your messaging? So, you know, make sure you're personalizing your outreach. And I know that's something that Clarence Jobs preaches a lot too, is, you know, don't just go out there and, you know, shoot a job description at somebody and expect them to return the message with interest, but personalize, you know, look into these people's background and see if there's something that you can draw on some commonalities that you could use in your approach. But again, don't be afraid to be aggressive. And I've heard some developers say, I'm not going to respond to you unless you reach out to me 10 times. I've heard others say, if you reach out to me more than once, I'm going to block your email. So everyone's different. There's no right and wrong answers, but don't be afraid to be aggressive and make sure you're being personal in your outreach because the competition is so fierce right now for this type of talent. Speaking of setting yourself apart, where did you come up with the intro music for your podcast, The Employment Line? Oh, that's so funny. Um, I, so I, I wrote that. I'm a musician too. And it's something that I've been doing since I was 13. And yeah, I wrote that kind of like a year or two ago and it just stuck. But the funny thing about it is, so we used it for the podcast, which is called The Employment Line. And I had a guy come over and sing on it. He knew nothing about The Employment Line. He didn't know that it was the theme song for our podcast. And he just started singing on it. And he naturally said, people waiting in the employment line in the lyrics. And I was just blown away. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is so nuts that that's the name of the podcast. You didn't know. And you just kind of sang that over the theme song. So, yeah, we, we wrote it. Well, I love it. Everyone needs to go listen to the employment line. Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time to you know speak with me today. This is Katie Keller, editor at ClarenceJobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cleared Cast. 
For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clarencejobs.com.